Would you please join me as I pray for us today as we engage with God's word together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the Bible. We thank you that you speak clearly in the Bible. We thank you that you don't want us to stay the same and that by your spirit you want us to change. We pray today you would be at work by your spirit so that that would happen. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got an introduction question for you. I'm reading it now. I'm looking at it and going, it sounds like I'm trying to sell you something. Uh, it's not, I'm not. <laughs> and it sounds like it's a little bit of a platitude. It sounds like it's not completely serious. Um, but it is completely serious, and I, I, hope, I hope today we'll think about it very carefully. The question I want to ask you is, do you know the transforming power of God in your life? Do you know the transforming power of God in your life? Is that part of your experience? Because you see, friends, the experience of knowing Jesus is supposed to change lives. In fact, in the Bible, we find it always changes lives. Knowing Jesus will bring change over the course of your entire life, uh, day by day, week by week, definitely year by year. Do you know the transforming power of God in your life? Because as Christians, all Christians, when they become Christians, are given the Holy Spirit who works his power to transform their lives to be more and more like Jesus, gradually over time. Friends, do you in your heart of hearts hunger and thirst to experience more of God's power to change you? I hope if you're not really thinking about about it that way, I can today encourage you to see it that way because if you're a Christian, you trust Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and you should expect to see transformation occur in your life and I should too. The Christian life must not become just running through the motions for any of us because that's it's just not what it's about. Uh, this is the second in a series on assurance. That may not sound like I'm talking about assurance at this point. I kind of am. Um, I want to just refresh where we're up to at this point. When I talk about assurance, I'm talking about assurance of salvation in Jesus, assurance that I know I know Jesus and that I'm part of his kingdom and I'll be in, in his kingdom and have eternal life forever, assurance of that. Um, and last week I asked this question, hardly original with me, but a very important one. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? It gets right to the heart of what Christianity is about because I hope you would say, not looking to yourself, but looking to Jesus, him there, he died for me. He's conquered death. I'm looking to him. I have nothing except what Jesus has offered me freely. I hope you'll look to Jesus. I hope your answer would be Jesus. Because that's what it looks like. We're painting a picture of what it looks like, and it's people who confess Jesus, who say, I belong to him. He died for me. I'm trusting him, and he's made my salvation secure. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it's astonishing the things it talks about with assurance of salvation. It says, through Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. Through Jesus, Christians are made perfect in God's sight. Through Jesus, Christians can approach Judgment Day with complete confidence that nothing they've ever done wrong will stand between them and eternal life. I asked a second question, because it sounds like that could just be a one-off decision, right? So I've prayed the prayer, like I've committed myself to Jesus. Is that it? Or am I, am I eternally secure now no matter what I do? And I said very strongly, no, you're not eternally secure no matter what you do because the Christian life is one of ongoing trust in Jesus. The, one of the ways the Bible very prominently presents the Christian life is as a race. It's an endurance race where you need to get to the finish line. How do you run this race? Well, you trust in Jesus, you keep trusting in Jesus, you hold on to Jesus, you live the life of faith in Jesus, 
until you die or the Lord Jesus returns. Because you need to get to the finish line. What's at the finish line? That's where salvation is located. Salvation from judgment. Resurrected to eternal life. Welcomed into the kingdom. You arrive at the kingdom looking to Jesus. And you arrive at the kingdom with him looking to you and saying, that's one of mine. Welcome into my kingdom. And so it's not just a one-off moment. You say, I've prayed the prayer, I can do whatever I want now. No, it doesn't work like that. It's the start of a life, new life in Jesus we talk about. And so the book of Hebrews defines Christians as those who finish this race and hold on to Jesus until firm to the very end. Chapter 3, read it. Friends, this is the race that you simply must complete. Um, I hope you're trusting in Jesus at this moment in time. But that isn't enough, just that you would trust in Jesus at this moment in time. I hope that in five years, it will find you trusting in Jesus. I hope in 10 years, in 20 years, or whenever the Lord takes you, that Jesus will be your confidence now and for eternity. Because it matters a great deal. We need to run the race with perseverance to be saved. I think it's a bit terrifying, personally. (laughs) Um, And so I asked a third question last week. Is finishing this race all up to me? Because, frankly, life can be hard. I don't know what obstacles will be between me and that finish line. I don't know what challenges will challenge my faith and maybe make me pretty insecure in trusting Jesus now. Is it really all up to me? Because it doesn't sound very assurancey at that point, does it? The wonderful news we went through last week is that it's not up to us. God is at work using his infinite resources to assure that his people will reach the finish line. I just want to read, if you're a quick Bible turner person, then turn to Romans chapter 8. I'll just read it. If not, that's fine. You can just listen to me read it. Romans chapter 8 talks about this, this picture of how we, uh, we move toward the finish line and what, what God is uh, doing in the background. And I'll read Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to, to 30. It says that, uh, And we know that in all things God works. For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And here's the bit I want to concentrate on. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And that that sums up what we were looking at last week. What's God doing in the background? Before creation existed... God predestined, chose people, handpicked them for salvation. And then within history, God grabbed the hold of those people by the preaching of his word, by people speaking clearly about Jesus. And by his Holy Spirit working in them, he ensured that they would respond with faith to that word and be saved. God was at work. It's the only way a person can confess Jesus is by the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God is the basis... The Spirit of God is the basis of running this race with perseverance because God, by the power of his Spirit, ensures that people get to the finish line and are glorified into his kingdom. God is at work in the background. It's a, it's a, um, it's a doctrine that's called the perseverance of the saints, the idea that all those who God has chosen and has given his Spirit to and have responded to Jesus, God will see through to the finish line. They persevere. Uh, perhaps you better call it preservation of the saints because it's really mostly about what God does to save people. God's working by his spirit to save people. You look at that, theoretically, and you go, that all sounds rather nice, but there's some pretty big kind of experience problems because we're in the midst of our personal stories. We can't see this from the perspective of eternity. I can't see the list of people who are predestined for salvation. I'm not standing in glory. I can't look around and see who's made it. 
And it isn't immediately obvious to me, looking around, which of you have the Holy Spirit working in your lives right now. Like, you're not glowing, in case you were wondering. You see what I'm saying? It, it, you look at it, and most of it's invisible to us. How do I know that this is me? How, do I, how can I have assurance that I'm saved? And that's what I want to look at today. How can I know I'm really one of God's chosen people? How can I know that I'm a Christian? It's an important question because the Bible warns that some people are self-deceived about their own conversion, which is a terrifying thought. How can I know this isn't me? Thankfully, the Bible says an awful lot on this topic. Well, I shouldn't say awful lot. It says a good lot on this topic. That's a better word, isn't it? A Christian is someone, as we've heard, that's been born again by the Spirit of God. Right there in the middle of history there, we've got this person who's had the Holy Spirit come on them, cause them to turn to Jesus, and will cause them to run this race of faith with perseverance. God's Spirit takes up residence in everyone who's converted to Jesus, and here's what he does. He does what the life-giving Spirit of God loves to do. He gives life. He starts renovating your heart now. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 says, Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That means that where the Spirit of God is, you should expect to see the transforming power of God at work. That's why it's such an important question, isn't it? We should expect to see the transforming power of God at work in our life. And so you can see what I call, perhaps it's a little bit overbranded, but anyway... Symptoms of new life. How do I know that new life in Jesus by the Spirit is at work in me, in you? Well, we can expect to see symptoms of it. The New Testament talks about these things quite a lot. Um, When I first wrote this sermon, I read the entire New Testament except the Gospels and Acts, I think. So half the New Testament. Um, And I, I, I just pulled out all the bits that are about how can you see people are saved? What's the evidence? And I've sort of pulled them together and I've got um, four points um, that are kind of the evidence that I'm talking about. But first of all, to be clear, we're just going to focus in on our elect person a little bit more um, here. Um, In the Bible, there's actually more than one type of assurance. And I don't want you to think that even... It's really very, very important. Um, First, there's the type of assurance you get at conversion. Um, You can know right now, if you've responded to Jesus, that he's your confidence for eternity, that he's the basis on which you're saved. You don't need something extra. Um, And so I just want to say, trust Jesus, be assured that you're saved in him. Um, but there's a second type of assurance that isn't as, it's not primary, it's not as fundamental, it's, uh, but is nonetheless very important and it's essential. Um, you see over time changed life. You see evidences that people are saved. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground and its future is to grow and become a marvellous big tree. When you plant that seed, you cannot know, you don't have evidence of its vitality in life yet. But as it grows over time, gradually you look at it and go, I think that thing's going to make it. I think that's going to go the distance. Do you you see the point? It's kind of a secondary proof, evidence you have. So the foundation of our assurance is a person looks to Jesus, that their faith is in Jesus. That's the foundation of assurance. How do you know, incidentally, that somebody's trusting in Jesus? The primary way is just that they confess him. I want to know, can can you say that? This is so fundamental. Um, It's so important. Do you personally name Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? I'm not just saying, do you think about him? Do you think he's all right? I'm saying, do you own him publicly? Would you say to another human being, have you said to another human being, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour? Do you confess him? That's that's the centre of assurance right there. 
But the New Testament also talks about growth in, in four areas, and I'll lay them out now before we have a look at them in uh, some of them in, in 1 John. Um, these aren't just for some Christians, they're for all Christians. It's what normal Christianity looks like, um, and most Christians, in my experience, reduce it to at least one or two of these by preference, and we need to look at all of them and we need to uh, exhibit all of them. The first one is head, and you're going to see very quickly with his heads. Oh, that was a pun, that was terrible. Knowledge of God, growth in knowledge of God and biblical doctrine and godly wisdom. I find it very interesting. When you read the letters by the Apostle Paul in the Bible, almost always they start with him saying, I am so thankful to God that you have come to knowledge of Jesus because that can only happen by the Spirit of God. And I pray that you will grow in knowledge of Jesus because that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's how he starts basically all these letters in, in different words, but that's, that's the basic content. Because head, knowing Jesus and maturing in insight into his word... And knowing him is one of the the fundamental marks that the Spirit of God is at work in a person's life. The second one is heart. Godly desires, replacing worldly desires with godly ones. The Spirit of God is in the heart change business because the Spirit of God loves righteousness and hates sin. And where the Spirit of God lives, sin can't comfortably remain. It isn't that Christians just know that they shouldn't sin because the Bible tells us you shouldn't sin. It's that our desires change as the Spirit of God is at work in us. We should expect our taste buds, our spiritual taste buds to change over time, the desires of our hearts to change. I'll give you an illustration of that. um, I've been amazed by how my taste buds have changed over the course of my life. I used to like this stuff, Fanta. Gosh, it's a ghastly drink. It's horrible. It's sugary syrup. It induces headaches. It's poison. It's horrible. I don't know how this is the same person, but this is a story about me. When I was 12, it was my favourite drink, I went on Boys Brigade hike. It was a long, hot day. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, it was a really long walk and it was hot. And in the middle of the day, we came to, like, a stop for lunch and there was a kiosk and I had some money and so all the kids are buying lollies and stuff. I bought a two-litre bottle of Fanta. I consumed that bottle for the remainder of that hike while it was horribly hot, and I loved it, and I didn't feel sick at all. It was just great. I, 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 remembering now, I'm just going, I can't drink half a cup of that and not regret it, basically. But at the time, I thought it was great. I didn't vomit or anything. But I have radically different taste buds than when I liked Fanta now. Um, I can still drink Fanta, but I'm not a Fanta drinker, and I always regret it afterwards. And that's how we should expect the Spirit of God to change us in regard to sin. Yeah, I can sin. I always regret it afterwards. Fundamentally, I'm not a sinner anymore. There's no sin here. I've changed from life to death. Sin, is, is, sin isn't where I live anymore. And I always regret it afterwards. And I look back and go, how could that person ever think that's a good way to live? It's not just that... I, I think, oh, well, sin's bad now. It's vomit-inducing. You wonder why you ever had anything to do with the horrible stuff. And so the question stops becoming, how much sin can I get away with as a Christian? You know, people sometimes ask that. How much sin can I get away with as a Christian? And the Spirit of God just says, why would you choose to sin at all? It's such an awful way to live. Your spiritual taste buds change. Your heart changes. The third one is hands. Actual obedience to God. What you do replacing bad works with good works. And there's a logic here, actually, um, I think. A knowledge of God's will, head, leads to a desire to do God's will, heart, which leads to actually doing it, hands. 
Christians actually obey God. We get on with obeying the things God tells us to do. There's actually a fourth one here. Um, Are there any guesses as to what's missing? Because there's something very fundamental missing. Any guesses? It's horrible, isn't it? Because I've just set you up to be all all be wrong because it's about my answer. Yeah. All right, I repent. I shouldn't do that to you. Um, What did Jesus say, though? Jesus said, um, by this you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Relationships. You can't just look at a person like in a vacuum and say, this person, head, heart, hands, that's a Christian. They're changed by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God always brings love, unity, forgiveness, brings real Christian relationships between God's people. By this, you'll know, people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. That's what Jesus said. That's the fourth attribute. Now, I call these symptoms of new life because where you see these things growing, you go, wow, I think the Spirit of God's at work there. And you get things like, said like this in Scripture. Listen to what Paul says, just analysing people in front of him. He says, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's seen that there's a good work done in them and he's confident that it will be carried on to completion. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This thing that we can't have access to, we can't know who God's chosen. Well, actually, you, you kind of can have some insight into that because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you became imitators of us. Their lives were changed. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became, well, that's hard, isn't it? And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's obedience. That's hands. Do you see? He's looking at people and going, you've been changed by the Spirit of God. This isn't just frivolous, I'll put my hand up and say I own Jesus now and then do nothing about it. This is radical life change. The man on the screen is a hero of mine who understood these things very well. His name's George Whitfield. He lived in the 18th century there. Um, he was uh, one, one of the greatest preachers in church history, certainly in the English language. Um, this man in the 1730s could walk to any paddock in England, say he was going to preach. Well, people would be waiting for him, actually, and 8,000 people would turn up to listen to him. And he'd go to the next village, and 8,000 people would turn up to visit him, and then 10,000 people. So he'd go to London, and 20,000, 30,000 people would turn up to visit him. To, to, to hear him preach, and he'd do it without a microphone. God gave him a great voice, thankfully. And a lot of people turned to Jesus through this man's preaching. Here's the thing. George Whitfield believed that real conversion to Jesus happens by the Spirit of God or it isn't real conversion at all. And he was very wary of these big, emotional, dramatic responses people are making to evangelistic campaigns but don't actually lead to changed life and people committed to Jesus for the long haul. So he looked for evidences that something more profound was happening. Um, but one of the things he did, um, the, America was starting to become a thing. Um, and so he, he, was, he did work in, in England, and then he went across to America, and, and, and he came back to England because he wanted to start an orphanage, and all the folks with money are in England, so we'll go back to England and ask for money to start this orphanage. And he went back to London to raise funds, and he met a lot of people who were converted under his ministry years before, and they were utterly changed. Head, heart, hands, relationships. The experience of knowing Jesus had transformed their lives and they were eagerly following him years later. And it was at that point that Whitfield could say, now I know that God has chosen you 
And I know that he will see that good work that he has started in you through to completion. It's very easy to get caught up in the moment of responding to Jesus. But you see a seed grow over time. And it brings this supporting assurance to you that there's something profound going on here. Confidence is still in Jesus. It's not in me and how God's changing me, actually. That's just evidence. But it's supporting evidence. And so I ask, do you know the transforming power of God in your life? And I urge you to seek it in 2016, because this is what Christianity looks like. Now, I've um, got us to look at 1 John, and we're going to look at some bits of 1 John now, and we'll see the same content again um, as, as what we've already, um, already seen in the sermon um, so far. So if you go grab 1 John, the book actually talks about um, confidence that people are in Jesus. Um, it says lots of times really straightforwardly, here's how you know who the children of God are. And it talks about some change that's happened. Um, it mostly concentrates on head, hands and relationships. Um, John does think heart is important, but he doesn't really focus on that here. Um, the first one, if you just flick back to the beginning of the book, and I'll just demonstrate what I'm talking about. Talk about head, how um, knowing Jesus and growth in Jesus is, is evidence of, of, um, that we're in life, that we're in Jesus. Listen to what the beginning of it says. It says about Jesus, verse 2, um, the life appeared, that's Jesus, the eternal life. We have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life. We as the apostles, the followers of Jesus, the authority of representatives of Jesus, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, appeared to us, us apostles, he says. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, we represent Jesus. You know Jesus through hearing what we have spoken to you, the truth that we have spoken to you about Jesus. We know God. And because you know what we teach you, you now know God too. He says some things here that would be terribly arrogant if they weren't true. Turn to chapter 4, verse 6, and listen to what he says. It's a wonderful way to win an argument. He says, we are from God. This is the apostles again. He says, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Far out. You, you go, okay, so you're right, and if I agree with you, I'm right too. And if I don't agree with you, I'm wrong because you're right. Like, it doesn't seem terribly fair, does it? But he's not being a jerk and he's not being arrogant. The point is, we met Jesus and we proclaim him to you and you need to know him through this book, through the Bible, because that's where knowledge of God is found. We saw him and our fellowships with him. Please share that fellowship with us and with him through our words. And so the Spirit of God leads God's people to hold these teachings and grow in them. I tell you what, one of the most exciting things I ever see in ministry is where I see people who just love the Bible. It really is the most exciting thing in the world. And perhaps I'm just unbalanced, but I, like, I, I look at it and I see people excited about the scriptures and treasuring the good things that God promises. And I go, gosh, the spirit of God is, uh, is at work there. It's, it's just front and center. It's not just a religious accessory, the Bible. It's, it's your very life. Talk about hands. Come back to chapter 1, verse 5. And these, like, these themes are all sort of um, they're repetitive and go in circles and that kind of thing. It's, it's a very kind of go in circles kind of book. 
where we talk about hands, how obedience to God and rejection of sin is evidence that the God, God's at work. It's, listen to how black and white it is. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we should have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There's darkness and there's light. If you turn to Jesus, you have moved from darkness over to light. It really is that simple. That's what he's saying. And you should expect your life to reflect that. Because sin doesn't belong on the side that you've turned to. You've changed allegiances. You'd be thankful for the next verse, though, because you go, I do sin. Well, verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, John is leaving his very little wiggle room here. On the one hand, he says, here's the conundrum, if I sin, I lie about knowing Jesus. But if I say I don't sin, then I lie because in fact I do sin. He said both of, do you see how unfair that is? <laughs> He's actually trying to give us very little wiggle room. Because what he's saying is, you've moved from darkness to light. This is not sin land. You live in righteousness land. You live in Jesus land, in light land, and this is where righteousness is done. Of course, you've still got the remnants of the fact that you sin, and if you disagree with that, you're just lying and you're not being truthful about God because you have sins to confess, and you need a saviour still. But your life needs to be changed, and it should just be reverting back to the old life. It's not fundamental to who you are anymore and so he points to jesus so wonderful chapter 2 verse 1 i write to this my dear children i write this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one see he really does have it both ways mercifully he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world and the whole book keeps going just black and white you get these sorts of things just keep going there's disobedience or there's obedience There's righteousness or there's sin. There's God as father or devil as father. There's living in love or living in hate. There's living in life or there's living in death. Friends, if you've changed allegiances to follow Jesus, then that should change your life. Christians must not entertain high levels of assurance that they know God whilst they entertain sin. It should be an alarm bell that shakes us up. If you watch any sporting event where there's two sides wearing coloured jerseys, you know which side's which. If a player from one team keeps scoring against his side and he's happy about it, you know which side he's really on. I don't care what coloured shirt he's wearing. I think that's pretty much the point here. And so when Christians sin, they don't minimise it or, heaven forbid, nurse it and enjoy it. Grief, regret, disappointment, repentance and joyfully recognising forgiveness in Jesus again because we have a great mediator in heaven who died for our sins. Love. Last is relationships. And in characteristic style, John leaves you no doubt how essential it is to being a Christian. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 7. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you've heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister 
is still in the darkness. That sounds pretty essential to me. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. See the evidence thing? And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Like our attitude to obedience, lovelessness is not an option for Christians. Friends, I've heard uh, love, uh, I suppose, misunderstood so many times that we should just briefly define that. Come, back to, come up to chapter 3, and it was in our second reading there, I believe. It's probably the most black and white confronting part of 1 John. Love is head, heart, and hands combined. Listen to what he says. He says, Dear children, verse 7, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, God, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning since the beginning. Which side are you on? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who's born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Come down to verse 16 and see what he says. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Some people think love is just heart. It's just feelings and good wishes. John says Christian love always means time and or money. Without time and or money, there is no love. Because it's not just good intentions. It's it's, it's doing things to actually help people. Some people think it's just hands. I'll love them by doing good things for them, but I have to grit my teeth because I don't really like them and I can't stand them. But 1 Peter 1.22 says, Love from the heart. It should be our desire. As for head, loving someone assumes you are pretty convinced you know what's good for them. Loving people requires wisdom and a set of priorities that are gospel-shaped and reflect the fact that we know God. It's not just a weak sentiment love. It requires head, heart and hands in unison in serving God. Now, friends, the Spirit of God brings life change. He transforms life. 1 Peter 1.10 says, we talked about you can't know if you're elect, you can't know if you're called by God. Well, listen to what 1 Peter 1.10 says. It says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Get on with growing in knowing Jesus, in loving him and growing in godly desires, in obeying God, in loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Make your calling and election sure as you see the Spirit of God transform you in 2016. Some of you might feel like you're going pretty well with that. To you, I just want to say, keep pressing on and don't grow presumptuous about it. Keep making every effort to confirm your calling and election. If you're a person who's trusting Jesus but you haven't seen much growth, I want to encourage you to cry out to God, pray to him, and ask that 2016 would be a year in which you see transformation in these areas. Pray for it. Ask God it because it's the work of the Spirit and if the Spirit of God's in you and you want the Spirit of God to be at work in you, well, ask God because he's a good God and he answers our prayers. If you've listened to what I've had to say to you today and you're absolutely despairing about whether you can know you're a Christian, I'd love to talk to you about that. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
It really isn't. Um, it, if it's causing you grief, that could be a good sign. It could be that the Spirit of God's causing you to feel that way because you're conflicted about it. You're taking it seriously and we should explore that further. But it could be that your lack of assurance is a God-given blessing that's designed to wake you up. It could be the God-given alarm system designed to bring you to repentance and commitment to Jesus afresh and to realise that whoever goes on sinning is lying and is not on that side. Whoever you are, expect. I'm going to pray for us now that 2016 would be a year in which you'd know God's transforming power in your life. Would you please join me? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who is a great and faithful saviour. Thank you that we have such a perfect mediator, our representative in heaven, who assures us of our right standing before you today and forever. Thank you that when we sin, we have him at your side to intercede for us. And thank you that we have the assurance of knowing that he's a great saviour and is utterly able to save us and see us through to your kingdom. We want to ask, Father, that by your spirit this year, you would change each one of us radically. Please be at work to transform our heads, our hearts, our hands and our relationships so that they would be unrecognisable from what they used to be and even what they are today. Please give us the grace to be in a position at the end of this year to look back and go, I cannot believe how the Spirit of God has transformed me and transformed my brothers and sisters in Christ at church as well. Please make that happen. And please help us not to grow complacent in following Jesus, but to recognise that as the Spirit of God is at work in us, that means we will act. Please give us the will and the desire and the perseverance to do this. Please help us to glorify Jesus more in every way. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Stand when you're ready.